Good morning. Welcome to First Colony Bible Chapel's uh, worship service. Actually, it's going to be just a sermon, but what I want to do first is let you know that today is somewhat extraordinary given that we have had to uh, cancel today's live service so that you can watch the video service. First thing I want to say is how much I appreciate the spiritual maturity of the elders and their agility in being able to make uh, rapid and good decisions. Second thing I want to mention is that we want to pray for those in our congregation who have been injured, who are ill. We especially want to pray uh, for Fred and Kathy and We also want to think about those who out of this have had to quarantine themselves. Um, Barb and I uh, are among that group. And so as we think about these things and as we move forward, I want you to remember what I had written in the Constant Contact. The Lord Jesus Christ is on his throne. Be encouraged. There is nothing that can overtake us that has not passed through our Savior's loving hands before we receive it. So now let's, uh, let's just begin in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. We're thankful for what you have done in our behalf. We pray, Lord, that our response will always be one of praise. And Lord, even when there are question marks, our response and the way our approach and our attitude will be of faith and of looking to you as the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Arguably, English composer Andrew Lloyd Webber is one of the most talented musicians to ever live. Uh, While not all his work is Christian-friendly, it is all exquisite. One of his compositions, Whistle Down the Wind, is uh, largely unknown in America. However, it has captured Barbara and me. It is a story about an escaped criminal who three children, deeply grieving the recent loss of their mother, mistakenly identify as Christ returned to earth. As the escaped convict tries to to explain that he is not Christ, uh, in the refrain of a song entitled The Nature of the Beast, the young girl sings as the error of her thinking begins to dawn on her these words, There is a prayer for the lost and the lonely. There's a prayer to make the blind ones see. But if you, you are not what you must be, then it's true. You haven't got a prayer for me. And I, I haven't got a prayer. I have nothing. Isn't that a statement about man's existence today? It speaks of humanity's lostness and hopelessness and pain. 
And even though Christianity is growing as rapidly as it ever has, that is not true of America or Europe. Ravi Zacharias said that the true revealing of our character is based on what makes us laugh and what makes us sad. I must say that with many of the comedians today, I don't remotely find them funny, yet they command great audiences. I was in the great Northwest in 1995 and watched the newly released movie Apollo 13. And uh, during the one segment of the movie, there was depicted on the screen uh, men praying for the astronauts. And as one, the audience booed. And I was dumbfounded. I was shocked. It's the first time I can recall ever believing in my heart that the West was on the precipice of a long, cold, moral abyss from which there may never be a return. We have flipped humor. We have flipped joy, and we have flipped sadness. Right has become wrong. Justice has become injustice. I'm reminded of Isaiah 5:20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. A woe is pronounced for such failings. Now, in our passages, we have already seen two of the three woes that were announced at the end of Revelation chapter 8. But at the beginning of Revelation chapter 8, recall we saw an amazing thing. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, while Scripture doesn't specify the reasons for the silence, we're not without some idea. First, the silence may have been a sign of deep respect and awe for being in the presence of the judge of all the earth. Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Second, the silence may be the result of somber reflection. When Jesus Christ opened the seventh seal, the scroll of God's judgment for the first time ever was revealed to everyone. All heaven sees and feels the weight of God's judgment. And it brought silence to them. Job, when he, faced, when he was actually faced with God, he said, I am undone. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Third, it's in my experience that those who are about to go into battle become silent. This may or may not have some bearing on the word infantry, but unless you've looked into it, most of you have never connected the word infantry with the word infant. Exactly the same root, essentially the voiceless ones, the silent ones. In September 2001, I was attending officers' squadron school. And we had just finished an hour of a game constructed by the military, so you can imagine how strange that was. And, but we had won, and we were 
back-slapping and trash-talking. We were in full victor mode. When someone yelled down the hallway, be quiet, turn on the TV, we did. The first Twin Tower there was a, a blaze, and all of us were wondering, because a lot of people in the Air Force, people in my group at that point were pilots, and they said, a small aircraft couldn't do that. That's not possible. And as we sat and watched, the second plane flew into the second tower, and we all knew at that moment exactly what that meant. But other than a few deeply drawn breaths, there was silence. I suppose we were silent for about 10 minutes. There's silence in heaven for half an hour, just seeing these woes that are about to come. There's a saying among chaplains, a saying among ministers, that silence comes to every home. There are times when the weight of something is so heavy that words cannot penetrate the silence. In this case, this is the calm before the storm, the storm of the final judgment coming upon the earth. The silence here emphasizes the finality of the seventh seal and the judgments to follow. Evil has had its day. Now the Lord will have His. Two weeks ago, we launched into chapter 9. Chapter 9 was a dark, a bleak, and a painful look at what is to happen in the future. But now we come to chapter 10. And that should generate in believers a sense of awe. Now it's an interlude. We've had interludes before. This is another one. It's an interlude that sets the table for the bold judgments. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants and prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said, to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. When I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. 
And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, for they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consume their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now that was an extended reading, but what I want to do is give you an overview of the passage that we're reading in chapter 10 and 11. And there are some very significant things in here that I would like to break down for you. First, it's then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Who is this angel? Now, many believe that this angel is none other than Christ himself. And if that's your position, you are in good company. But if you believe this is an angel, you too are surrounded by men like Walvert and Ryrie and J. Vernon McGee, with whom I agree. Why? There's, there's three implicit reasons in, that are implied, and then there's one direct reason. First, aside from the Old Testament, Jesus is never called an angel. In Revelation, he's never referred to an angel unless you take this particular passage as a reference to him. Second, it says, I saw another mighty angel. As it turns out, in English, as well as in Greek, as well as in Hebrew, another means a reference to an additional person or thing that is of the same type as the one already mentioned. There is no another Christ. There may be another angel, 
but Christ stands alone. Third, this angel is not worshipped. When John was faced with Christ, he fell as if he was dead. This angel, he just marvels at the size of the angel and what the angel was doing. The angel was simply fulfilling his duty. Now those are three implied reasons, but the fourth is not. And for me, it's very direct. When I joined the military, I took an oath, like I hope Micah will take tomorrow. And it goes like this, I, John Franklin Tillery, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. So help me God. When I raised my right hand in the same way that the angel did, the completion of that was through God helping me. I could not make an oath based on myself. I am too weak, I am too small, I am too fallible. The oath is made by, helping, by God helping me to fulfill it. Angels can make, can swear like that. I don't think that's an action that's suitable for our Savior. And notice who he raised his hand to. He raised his hand to heaven. Do you think that meant that he raised his hands to the stars? No. Heaven is a word that is used all through Scripture, meaning God. He raised his hand to God and said, There will be no more delay. It's not the action of the Savior. It's a figure of speech for heaven, meaning God. So why, why does this angel, I mean, read the description, why did this angel have these enormous characteristics so similar to God? Well, I think I know why. And I believe that intuitively you know why as well. In Exodus 34, we find that Moses actually spent time with God on the mountain. When he came down, his face shone. His face was so lighted up, you know, he had to put a, a bag over it so that people wouldn't see when it had gone away. In other words, being in the presence of the Almighty changes you to the degree that a created being can be changed into His image. I mean, isn't that our goal? Isn't our goal to be like Jesus? Those who are around God and Jesus, we emulate Him. We desire to model after Him. We desire to be like Him. I mean, it's not a stretch to see an angel who since the day of His creation has been consumed by the presence of God to reflect those various characteristics. Isn't that what Paul meant 
when he wrote in Corinthians, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this angel is powerful. Well, an angel, there are some very powerful angels. Listen, it is an angel. It is not God. It is not Christ. It is by his command. But it is an angel who throws Satan into the abyss. And this may be the very angel. Understand, uh, there are, when this angel comes down, there are innumerable demons running wild on the earth when he places one foot on the water and one foot on the land. This angel is a colossus. Now, some we don't know who this angel is. Some say it's Michael. Some say it is Gabriel. Even Jewish tradition gives a hint, even though they wouldn't accept this text. Nevertheless, they believe that the least known archangel that they're aware of is an angel named Sandalphon. Now, Sandalphon is the tallest of all angels, according to tradition, and his height is a 500-year-by-foot journey. That's a tall angel. Now, I want to say something about that, because as big and as powerful as they are, and they may be even larger, we have no concept because they're in some kind of other dimension than ours, or if they're in our dimension, they're hidden from us. But regardless of that, these angels are powerful. And yet one day, those of us who are believers, we will exercise oversight over these angels. I don't even know how to begin to comprehend that kind of responsibility. But we will judge them. We will oversee them. Now, while Revelation is primarily designed to reveal, it's a revelation, it's the revealing, it's telling us these things. Nevertheless, verse 4 tells us not to write what the voices of the seven thunders said. For some reason, God does not want us to know what these judgments are. Alfred Hitchcock once told a story about a king who was granted two wishes. His first wish was, I want to see the future. And after he'd seen the future, with all its joys and with all its sorrows, he immediately said, grant me my second wish, please. What's your second wish? To hide everything that I have seen. Let the future be hidden from me. Now you wouldn't, you wouldn't think this, but Alfred Hitchcock uh, was actually a fairly religious man. And here's what he said. I thank heaven that tomorrow does not belong to any man it belongs only to God. There are some things that God doesn't want us to see. He doesn't want us to know. And perhaps that's the case with these thunder uh, judgments. 
So solemnly swearing by God, the eternal creator, the angel declared, there will be no more delay. So in the end days, the mystery of God, there's going to be no more delay to this. What we find is, is that the judgments are almost complete. The seventh trumpet will open the seven bowls, and the bowl judgments are the final judgments. And Sometimes the Lord seems to delay. I believe that this delay and the reason for the delay, the, the, he wasn't swearing to God that something was delayed, that he was delayed. God doesn't operate in a universe or in a place of being delayed. I believe this is the prayers under the altar that Dan spoke of last week of the martyred saints saying, How long, O Lord, how long will you delay? How long will this be? The Lord is always perfectly and rightly on time. I mean, for us, sometimes we, we cry out, Where are you, Lord? Why do you delay? When will your kingdom come? How long? How long? And we're pained sometimes by this. But the eye of faith can see through sorrow and can see through pain and looks to the throne of heaven where he is operating on his timetable in his way for his purposes. And we're just grateful and thankful that he loves us. The reference here about mystery, the mystery being fulfilled, is not about the hidden truths that Paul spoke of. Remember the word mystery means a, a truth that was heretofore not revealed. That is not the kind of mystery that's being spoken of here. The mystery that's being spoken of here is the actual fulfillment of all the glorious promises in the Old Testament of the Messiah's return and the establishment of His eternal and righteous kingdom. What we see next is John obeys the angel's instruction. And so he goes, he asks for the scroll, and he takes it, and the angel tells him to eat it. And it's going to be sour, bitter in your stomach, but it's going to be sweet as honey. He hadn't written what the seven thunders said, but he was to eat what the Lord said. So what does this mean? That's evident all through Scripture that eating a, a book means that he appropriated the words of God. He consumed them. He made those words a part of himself. He devoured them. And they were sweet to his taste, but they became bitter. To John, the word of God was sweet. But the revelation of its grace and mercy and precious promises but that sweetness was in marked contrast to his circumstances on Patmos Island. And so he was in the midst of a bitter situation. There was this sweetness. Now, is that exactly what that means? No, I don't think so. I'll tell you what I believe it means. I believe that you cannot read the Word of God and see the grace and the mercy and the love and the compassion and the care of God without also seeing a day of 
judgment. You cannot see or find the narrow way without seeing the broad and the way that leads to hell. You cannot see the word of God and its mercies and its grace to you without seeing someone that you love and that you care about and that you know that they do not believe. And that should cause bitterness in your soul. You see that. This is the same, I take this as the same as the aroma that Paul wrote of in the book of Romans when he said, to one it is a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. In other words, for us, the word of God is sweet, is it not? To others, it is bitter. It caused Ezekiel to preach. Seeing this, we actually have we don't have the time to look at it, but Ezekiel went through a very similar experience as John has here. And John is told, you must prophesy again. Howard Hendricks would often uh, tell us uh, when it was to do with entering the ministry, he says, if you can do anything else, do that. Don't do this. The reason is this. You have to be compelled to do this. And that's a hard message to hear. That's a difficult message to hear. He wasn't talking about what you can do. It's very capable people. He's talking about what you must do because the Lord is compelling you to do this. John, you must prophesy again, he says. And then in chapter 11, 1 and 2, John is given a rod to measure the temple and the altar, but not the outer court. Uh, and the reason for that, what that meant was he was to measure the holy place and the holy of holies. That's what he was measuring. And he was also measuring the people in it. That's an interesting concept, which we can't develop right now. But he was not to measure the outer court. And the reason for that is that for 42 months, the Gentiles would trample the holy city. We'll talk about that more as we proceed through the book. But in the tribulation, what I want you to get is this. When he is telling him to measure the holy of holies, when he's telling him to measure the holy place, he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about a physical place. In the tribulation, the temple will stand. Jesus even said this in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation, well, the only place that can occur, biblically speaking, is in the Holy of Holies. The only place that can occur is, we'll see later in the book. Now, this is complex, and it's a very difficult situation, because as of now, as an Islamic holy place, the Temple Mount, is second only to Mecca. We do not know how, we do not know when, but we do know that during this time there will be a temple. Another complication, not just simply that, but the priesthood is not functioning. Uh, however, we've made some staggering progress with DNA, and it may become possible 
for certain lines to be retraced to establish the priesthood. At the beginning of the 42 months, Dan mentioned this last week as well, you've got the first half of the tribulation, which is known as the tribulation, but the second half is known as the great tribulation. And the sacrifices will cease, they'll stop, because the temple will be desecrated, will become a shrine for the world ruler, and he will put an idol in there, likely himself, and proclaim himself to be God. We see that in Daniel chapter 9. John was also instructed, again, to count the worshipers who came to the temple. So God's going to evaluate them and those in it. And then we come to a very interesting section of Scripture, one which perhaps could develop uh, further, but suffice today uh, to, to look at it. You may want to do some study on your own. But we're talking about the two witnesses. John is told there's going to be two witnesses who are empowered by the Spirit of God to serve as prophets for 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. Now, numerous interpretations have been given concerning these two witnesses, but the, uh, the fact is we have no idea. Scripture does not tell us. There's been considerable discussion in, on these various uh, views. What it does say that we can say with certainty is that the two witnesses are olive trees and lampstands. So this has this Old Testament background. We see exactly the same thing in Zechariah 4 too. The two witnesses in that passage were actually identified. One was Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. And their connection to the lampstand uh, was this. It, their connection was this. They would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. As Joshua and Zerubbabel were, so these two witnesses will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And like Old Testament prophets, they're going to have this tremendous power at their disposal, supernatural miracles, fire to destroy them. Like Elijah, they'll have the power to stop the rain. And like Moses, they'll have the power to turn the river to blood and also to bring plagues. And, and during the unbelief, the apostasy, and satanic power of the Great Tribulation, through that whole time, pretty much, these two witnesses are a threat to the Antichrist. Their story goes on in 7 through 10, and that tells us that the ministry of these two witnesses will be ended because God is going to permit a beast to rise from the abyss known as the Antichrist, and he is going to overcome them, and he's going to kill them, and their bodies are going to be left unburied. Now, to the Western ear and eye, that sounds a very strange thing, but even up to modern times in many countries and in many cultures, that's exactly what they'll do, is they will leave the bodies out and unburied, and they will kill anyone who tries to give them appropriate or proper uh, burial. They're left there. I mean, and figuratively, and even says symbolically, Jerusalem here is called Sodom. I, that is a powerful 
denunciation of what Jerusalem will be in that day. For three and a half years, or three and a half days, the world is going to gloat over them. I mean, and obviously that implies some kind of worldwide display, possibly TV, we, we don't know. But their deaths were considered a great victory for the Antichrist, for Satan, and people were celebrating, giving one another gifts and presents. I, I don't rejoice over anyone's death, much less giving presence to someone because of it and then something amazing happens 11 and 12 tells us that after three and a half days in the street suddenly the two witnesses stand up on their feet and when they stand up on their feet they're heard by everybody they hear a voice from heaven come up here then they go to heaven in a cloud their enemies. I mean, you can imagine the fear and trembling of that. And at the same moment, there's an earthquake in Jerusalem and 7,000 are killed. So in contrast, now this is interesting, and we'll explore this further later. In contrast with previous judgments where revolt and rebellion always resulted in the fist in the face of God, I want you to notice something is different here. They were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. God doesn't do any of this simply for the purpose of punishment. And it is always designed to bring people back to him, as was this with the two witnesses and now only the seventh trumpet, the final and third woe, is to come. So by way of application and in closing, when things are not so good, and for many things are not so good right now, when your life seems to be in chaos, when the stability of your Routine is thrown to the wind, perhaps when there's feelings of helplessness or hopelessness. Remember this, Jesus Christ is still on his throne and he will, and we're told in another passage, he will finish what he started. And you will find encouragement and comfort in his promises. You can find a sweet message here, even in the bitter experiences of life. John did. In the bitter experiences of his life, he had the sweetness of the Word of God. And even though it brought him pain to see what was going to happen, no one wants to see others to harm. But nevertheless, rebellion cannot be tolerated. And whistle down the wind, the audience and the young girl who sang the refrain, I haven't got a prayer, are ultimately left with a sense of wonder and of hope. For in our lives, if Jesus is not who he must be, then we haven't got a prayer, but thanks 
to God who takes us from victory to victory. He is risen from the dead, and because He is risen, we too shall have life, life abundant, life eternal. Father, we are deeply grateful for the message that you have given to us through our brother, the Apostle John. Lord, we thank you for what it means to us. And even though sometimes we may struggle with it, underneath it all, we know that there is your power and your loving hand directing not only those days, but our days as well. So we rest in the comfort knowing that you are tending to us and you are one who loves us so much that you gave your son to die for us. Strengthen us and encourage us this day through Christ our Lord.